Chapter 17 Off A Diamond Sky Above Titanic A Good Omens Fan Fiction Written by Sea Blue Eyes Read aloud by Sky Asimaru If you enjoy this potfic, you can check out the original story on Archive of Our Own. If you would like to hear more of my recordings or see some of my own work, you can find me through the pen and screen name of Sky Asimaru. A Diamond Sky Above Titanic Chapter 17 The Lost Century Heaven hadn't changed much. Not that he would have expected it to in only four hundred years, but you never knew. Aziraphale supposed that he should be feeling all warm and happy at being home again. He didn't. Barely a word was said to him about that demon. They wouldn't discuss it. Perhaps they had chosen to believe he had been placed under some dark magic, or had been working with the fiend against his will. Perhaps they were just pretending it had never happened. Aziraphale was merely slapped on the wrist, told not to do it again, and placed on a rehabilitation program. They would have kept him there longer, but World War II had other ideas. Eventually, they had to admit that he had been good at his job, inspiring goodness and creativity in man, as is the role of a principality, and that, since he seemed to be totally fine, they should really just let him go back. His bookshop had, by some miracle, still been there. It had all been a bit dusty, and the junk mail as he'd pushed open the front door had been a good foot deep. But other than that, it was fine. He had gone into his little kitchenette, made himself an Earl Grey with two rather soft butter biscuits and then walked along every towering shelf, greeting the occupants like old friends. This was his home. Though he would later not be able to follow his own logic, for his first few days back on Earth, Aziraphale put off searching for Crowley. It had been thirty years. If the demon had been recalled in that time, replaced, then that would be that. No more Crowley. No more afternoon teas at the Ritz. No more hoarding stale bread for the St. James's populace. No more tame evenings at the opera, and less tame evenings in the shop's back room and no future either. None of the plans they had discussed and dreamed up together. That day when all secrets had been laid bare. There would be no cottage in the downs, no freshly baked angel cakes cooling above the aga, 
No rainy Sunday mornings with breakfast and a paper in the big indulgent bed. No houseplants to cheer or Christmas trees to decorate together or fascinating little villages to explore. A world without Crowley. For days, Aziraphale couldn't bear the thought of finding out. Ignorance was safer. Not bliss, but safer. Eventually, he could no longer stand it. The only problem with deciding that now was the time to find a loved one was that half the country was also wondering what had become of their own loved ones. Away fighting, or missing since a bombing, or evacuated. Most of the demons' favorite bars were closed on inspection, some completely obliterated in the blitz. His swish manor had been sold, and there was nobody to ask, neither demon nor angel. But it was only a year until he saw him anyway. There had been another raid in the night, and Aziraphale had been out all morning in the rubble, helping to look for survivors, or consoling bereaved ones, or making tea. It was now twelve o'clock, and he was wandering the perimeter of the duck pond in St. James's Park, like he had always done before. It was chilly, and the sky hung heavy, clouds swollen with the promise of rain not yet shed. He was thinking about William and Emily, the evacuated children of Mrs. Turner from three doors down. What was to become of them now that their mother was dead? She was such a lovely woman. He pulled his woolen tan coat closer around his body and turned the collar up around his ears, wishing he'd had the foresight to bring an umbrella. Or perhaps he was wishing that the rain would come, just so that he could feel it on his face and think, God that he was still here to feel it. There were only a handful of other people out on that grim morning. An elderly couple on a bench, half hidden behind the great broadsheet they held up between them. A young woman staring numbly into the water, completely unmoving. A dark-haired man on the next side of the pond, sauntering along with his hands in his pockets, wearing sunglasses even as the first raindrops fell. <gasps> Aziraphale just about felt his heart implode. He stopped dead where he stood. It couldn't be. It couldn't possibly. He ran. He ran so fast that the grieving young woman looked up to impassively watch him shoot by, and the elderly couple exclaimed in alarm as the air disturbance snapped their telegraph back in their faces. Aziraphale ran and ran, his footsteps loud in the still morning as they slapped on the cobblestoned path. His breaths bursting from him, the rain blurring his glasses. Crowley, he cried. Crowley! The figure turned, 
unconcernedly around. It was him. It was him. Oh, sweet God and Jesus and wild, it was him. Aziraphale could feel his knees growing weak as the intense relief hit him. He couldn't think. He couldn't breathe. Because it was Crowley. And he was here. And he was here. And everything was going to be all right. And they were going to be together again. And they were going to have an aga after all. And Crowley smiled at him raised a hand and gave him a little wave, parted his lips to speak, and Aziraphale launched himself into his beloved's arms with enough force to knock anybody but a demon off his feet. Oh, Aziraphale, gasped Crowley, grinning even as he awkwardly tried to disentangle the angel's choking embrace. Aziraphale, what? Aziraphale would not be disentangled. He clung on tighter than ever, immersing his face into the gorgeous black fur collar of the demon's coat, recognizing every curve, rather angle, of the body folded against his own, every sensation and every scent. No, not every scent. There was something new, something leathery, and motor oil, too. He bought himself an automobile. Oh, how typical. He should have known. Aziraphale clung to Crowley, loved every perfect inch of him in that one moment. And oh, how he would never ever let go now, not now that they were here again, together on God's good green earth once more. And how had he ever let go in the first place, ever? Okay, well, it's certainly nice to be missed, but you're kind of choking off my gratuitous air supply here. <clears throat> With immense strength, Crowley forcibly extricated himself from Aziraphale's arms, stared at him as though he was slightly mad, his brows, wonderful serpentine arches of serpentine wonder that they were, seemed caught between rising in mocking amusement and lowering in alarmed befuddlement. <laughs> Seriously, Angel, he said, and the sudden humorlessness of his voice suggested he had decided on the latter. What's the matter with you? It's only been a century or so, you know. Aziraphale froze. A century? Uh, when was it? 1824? <laughs> Barely more than a century, then. All of a sudden, Aziraphale found that he couldn't speak. He couldn't breathe. Ah, that's right. It was Vienna. The demon snapped his fingers to himself, nodding. Of course, Beethoven's Ninth was premiering. A fantastic after-party. There was an odd lucidity to his voice, given how increasingly far away he sounded. 
every word perfectly coherent in the angel's mind, as though starved of the voice it craved, it was now soaking up each syllable like butter across hot toast. Hey, hi! Aziraphale realized that he couldn't see. Everything was turning gray. Distant thunder growled overhead. Angel? Crowley peered at him, and Aziraphale jumped as his shoulder was clasped. <laughs> You're okay, Aziraphale. You look a little pale. Maybe you should sit down for a minute. No, no, I'm, I'm fine. Aziraphale sniffed, fought to bring himself back under control. <laughs> under control? He was falling apart at the seams. I'm just, uh, just not used to, uh, to running like that. <laughs> yeah, I can see that, grinned Crowley. And Aziraphale felt his heart be crushed with grief, smeared across his ribcage, the gaping hole behind throbbing with loss. How have you been, anyway? It's been a while. Oh, he couldn't cope with this. The mannerisms, the sarcasm, the fond nicknames, the cheekbones and the eyes and the glasses and the elegant outfits. He couldn't. He could feel his self-control slipping away. He had to get away. Get away from here. From him. Right now. The rain began to fall, fast and heavy. I've been just fine, he lied through a smile. A traitorous tear escaped and ran down one cheek, invisible in the rain. I've actually, actually, got to get going, I'm afraid. I'll have to catch up with you another time. Crowley, completely dry, of course, was looking at him oddly. Uh, yeah, sure, he said, then peered at him again. You sure you're okay, Angel? No, no, he was not okay. He felt like he was dying on the inside, and Crowley didn't even seem to realize what he was doing, how much he was killing him. Aziraphale had to swallow before he could answer. No, no, I'm just fine, thank you. Good, uh, good seeing you. And he turned and began to walk in the other direction. No footsteps in his whole existence had ever felt so difficult. Every fiber of his being cried at him to stop, to turn, turn around. You're going the wrong way. Crowley called after him. So, see you around then. Aziraphale inhaled deeply, turned to look back at him, set against the falling rain and the smoking city and the livid sky. The demon looked so, so beautiful. He could have been painted that way. He should have been painted. He was wearing his hair longer now, swept across his forehead, no longer slicked back from his face. His shades, too, were new, 
more rectangular and lighter, though still enough to mask those holy inhuman eyes beneath. That amber-yellow, it had been so long since Aziraphale had seen it. Heartbreak, like heartburn, ached within his hollow chest. How could emptiness be breakable? Aziraphale knew in that moment that it was possible. Oh, oh yes, yes, of course, my... His words almost caught in his throat. My dear... And then he left Crowley standing alone at the duck pond in St. James's Park. If he had looked back, he would have seen the demon shrug to himself, then carry on in the same direction he'd been headed. It was a long walk home to the bookshop, and the rain was torrential now, but Aziraphale didn't really notice. It seemed fitting. When he finally turned the key and let himself in, his hair was stuck around his face, and his clothes were soaked through, clinging to him. He slowly closed the door shut behind him, pressed his back against it, listened to the lashing rain, muffled behind him, the silence of the bookshelves in front. He felt the cool, rippled glass through his sopping hair. Then he slid to the floor, put his head in his hands, and sobbed his wretched, broken heart out. Crowley would keep reappearing in Aziraphale's miserable existence of a life, Every couple of months, he did know where the angel lived, after all, and Aziraphale found that he didn't have the willpower to decline any more offers out, even if it did tear him apart inside and leave him pining and numb and useless for weeks on end when his dear companion would inevitably disappear again. He found that Crowley could recall absolutely nothing about the Titanic, other than that he had been on it, and that he had had a significant hand in sinking it. Every time Aziraphale brought it up, the demon would change the subject, seemingly unconsciously. The matter appeared to just slide out of his mind like water off the back of a mallard. It didn't take the angel long to conclude that the Lethe was responsible. His self-pity had initially left room only for the belief that Crowley simply didn't love him any more. Hell must have talked him into sense, or brought that fiend he'd smote back to play. Or perhaps he had decided for himself that Aziraphale had been a bit of fun, good in the sack, and would make a nice friend with benefits if he was in the mood for some. But over time, the angel came to look at that sensibly and realized that no, of course Crowley wouldn't stop loving him. He had jumped off the lifeboat to die with him, hadn't he? 
He had told him he loved him twice and bled for it. He had saved him from Asmodeus. No, Crowley could no more stop loving him than he could stop loving Crowley, which left one other option. Of course, Aziraphale was well read on the geography of hell. All angels were. In fact, it had been Aziraphale who had told Homer about its rivers, in a bid to inject some truth into his Iliad and the rest. Aziraphale had never heard of the Lethe being used on a demon before, but then he had never heard of a demon disobeying so atrociously that it required the removal of memories. The more he thought about it, the more it made sense. And the more he thought about it, the more sense he lost. It terrified him how much he was capable of loving Crowley. The first law of angels, a law so intrinsic within every celestial being, as instinctive as knowing good from evil, is to love God. It isn't even a law, really, but a way of life, as necessary to them as breathing is to humans. Every breath for humans is relief so imperceptible that it is unconscious, unfelt until air is taken away. For angels, every moment loving God is like the next breath, alleviation of a pain only seconds away from manifesting itself. And without it, without the love, without God, those fallen angels are in perpetual agony until they learn to control their pain. Aziraphale loved God. All angels did. But he also loved Crowley, and nothing else in his whole life scared him quite as much as that did. Aziraphale gradually came to stop associating the demon with Titanic and with loss. The pain of the demotion from lover to friend would never cease. But slowly, the wound became more bearable. He came to appreciate what he had and saw his desire for more as selfish. Crowley seemed happy, and they were both alive. He should be grateful for that alone. This is not to say that he didn't try to find a way forward, nonetheless. On more than one occasion, he sought to romance the demon, despite his inexperience in the area. A trip to Paris, a flight under the aurora, an evening meal at the Ritz, surrounded by glamorous couples. But, like with the Titanic, the demon simply seemed incapable of taking the hint. Affection just went right over his head. 
He told Crowley he loved him once, when they were slumped side by side on the demon's white leather couch in 1985. He'd been so drunk the world was on a pendulum, swinging back and forth before his eyes. I love you, Crowley, he'd murmured, settling his head against the demon's shoulder. Love you so, so, so much. If he just closed his eyes like this and snuggled in like this and turned his face like this to breathe in the demon's intoxicating scent, the heady, smoky, lilac cologne, the leather, the expensive suit, the... Was that lemon and vanilla? Then he could almost pretend. The intense sorrow that hit him all of a sudden, after so many decades of blocking it out, of refusing to imagine, was literally sobering. Crowley had leant his own head against the angels. Love you too, Sarah he'd hissed, patting his arm, and then promptly gone to sleep. A seraphel nestled further into the snoozing demon, buried his face into that sleek, sexy, must-up hair, gently, so very gently, kissed his temple, tasted the salts of his skin. He moved his leg ever so slightly, chafed it against the demon's own. Aziraphale closed his eyes in frustration, feeling himself rise to meet his hands. Someday, my dear, he murmured, spying a nearby blanket to drape across them both. Serpents really felt the cold, poor things. Someday. In 1996, Crowley didn't show up for their annual meeting. Young Warlock was to be tutored soon, and the plan had been to clandestinely sit on the Thames River bus and discuss who best to bring in. The ticket for the full-length tour had been rather expensive. Dejected, Aziraphale had alighted at Westminster. It was summer 1997 when he first saw it. The billboard was taller than his shop. Each of the seven letters was at least his height. Titanic. The poster featured two embracing young lovers above a view of the ship's nose as sharp and streamlined as an arrowhead. Critics' comments below claimed it to be the film of the decade, unmissable, a masterpiece. That winter, Titanic fever hit as the film became a global phenomenon, the most popular to ever hit the screen. Its success was staggering, 
Jack and Rose became the modern Romeo and Juliet. Aziraphale couldn't leave the house without seeing some kind of reference to the film. Another magazine cover, another poster, another My Heart Will Go On on the radio. Even his telegraph crossword began to bear references. Aziraphale was passing an appliance store's window when he first saw the trailer. It was playing on a loop on each of the window's two dozen state-of-the-art 32-inch television screens. He stopped and stared. He went inside to hear the audio. When he left, he'd somehow been convinced to buy one of the infernal machines. And so it was that Aziraphale bought his first and last television set. When, the following year, the angel and demon next met up in the National Art Gallery, Aziraphale nonchalantly asked Crowley where he had found his inspiration from. <laughs> Search me, the demon had shrugged. I overheard Jimmy discussing a couple of ideas with his producer in a bar, and I thought, aye, sounds like a bloody good idea to me. And who better to co-direct than someone who's had first-hand experience on the thing? Uh, can you remember any of that first-hand experience? said Aziraphale, a touch desperately, unheeding of the clotted cream and jam now sliding thickly down his fingers. Okay, so maybe he had let himself go a little over the years. Well, wouldn't you too? He'd had a lot on his mind this past century. It would drive anyone to carbs. No, he wasn't self-conscious at all about his weight. Thank you very much. Now, if you would please mind not bringing up the matter again. Wonderful. He'd tried this a dozen times before, of course. But the film seemed like evidence of some kind of... of unconscious memory. If he could remember enough to create Jack and Rose so obviously from their own experiences, then perhaps with the right push he could remember who he had taken the inspiration from. Crowley just shrugged again, unconcernedly sipping his black Americano. <laughs> the ideas just flew from me. It really got on the guy's nerves, the way I kept taking over all the time. It was my idea to bring James Horner in, too, he added proudly. They'd had some kind of fallout, but you know when you just know that someone is right for you? <coughs> Aziraphale choked on his mocha. And you just know that he's exactly what the movie needs, and I just knew the soundtrack would end up a complete flop if we didn't get the guy on board. And so it went. Crowley seemed capable of talking about the film, but never the actual event. 
He couldn't even discuss the film beyond a certain superficial level. And no matter how much the demon pestered him, or how often the events of that fateful voyage played as their own cinematographic masterpiece in his head, Aziraphale couldn't bring himself to go and see it. The world hadn't ended, but as far as they were concerned, that wouldn't matter. Aziraphale looked from his flaming sword over to Crowley, holding his tire iron in front of him like, well, a flaming sword. Endearing was not a word usually applicable to the demon, but anyone grasping a weapon so useless, with such ferocity and determination on his face, all singed and disheveled, it was endearing. And it was remarkable, really. Lucifer was on his way for a nice reunion and was in all likelihood about to finish them off. Yet Aziraphale felt so calm. He smiled across to Crowley. This was one of those moments, wasn't it, where he was supposed to say something, something moving and meaningful and profound, or confess a truth. He took a deep breath of air that should have scorched his throat raw. <clears throat> I'd just like to say, if we don't get out of this, that... He hesitated. What could he say? Thanks for a great six millennia? You were the best, you know, that I've ever had? Or just simply, I love you? Aziraphale swallowed. No, it was no use. He couldn't. Besides, it was ridiculously cliched to confess love an inch from death. I'll have known deep down inside. He would tell him one day. This would not be the end. Aziraphale found words in his mouth. Words that warmed him from the inside, that perfectly expressed his feelings. He smiled again, feeling all his love pooling into his eyes as he spoke, so tender it was like a caress. That there was a spark of goodness in you. Crowley appeared less than moved. <laughs> That's right, he said bitterly. Make my die. Aziraphale hadn't realized that hugs are a physical force within you, a power all of their own that are quite capable of manifesting at any given moment. It was with all the self-control he could muster that Aziraphale held out his hand. He breathed in a deep, calming breath. Nice knowing you, he said. It was quite possibly the understatement of the century. Crowley took it. <laughs> Here's to the next time, he said. And Aziraphale? Aziraphale felt his heart skip a beat. Yes, 
he asked, standing very still. Crowley's eyebrows lifted slyly behind his shades as he smiled. <laughs> Just remember, I'll have known, deep down inside, you were just enough of a bastard to be worth liking. Aziraphale told himself he was happy, that he would burst into tears at the tiniest of incidents, a book he hadn't been that fond of being sold, or a whale being stranded down the Thames or opening his fridge to find he had no milk. He put down to mere stretched nerves and stress overload after the not-really-the-end-of-the-world that he wouldn't eat, wouldn't unless he went out to do so, and that was always with a certain being for company. He put down to mere common sense new post-apocalypse dieting revolutions. He seemed to live off tea and digestives alone. Not even the chocolate ones. And didn't notice the weight falling off him. Crowley did, though, and would frown to himself as the angel continued to refuse desserts would pester him into buying an ice cream as they strolled the perimeter of the park they now fondly thought of as their own, would try to sneak sugar and cream into his tea when he thought the angel wasn't looking. Aziraphale told himself he should be happy. He knew he wasn't. The century was waning, not the actual century, that was. Rather, his own century. Their own century. The century they had lost. 2012 was fast approaching, yet it might as well have still been 1912, the day before they set sail. It was presently four in the morning, Christmas Day, 2011. Aziraphale opened his fridge. Inside there was butter, one year old, and brie, two years old, and an open bottle of white, two hundred years old, and an open bottle of milk. Aziraphale pulled the latter out, unscrewed the cap, sniffed. He set the milk down on the counter. He set the cap down next to it. Then he fell to his knees, put his head in his hands, and, in the soft illumination of the open fridge, burst into tears. To be concluded in Chapter 18 Thank you for reading. Please drop by the archive and let the author know what you thought of their work.